0: Hello, my lovely betwixters. This is Kate Lister. I'm jumping in to give you your fair dues warning. What's a fair dues warning, Kate? Well, a fair dues warning is that you have been warned that this is an adult themed podcast with adult discussions going on and some swear words and general naughtiness. So you can't get upset because fair dues, we have warned you, this is your time to back out now while you still can. For those of you committed to this debauch journey with me, let's get into it. We've got a great one today. When she was married by proxy at the age of 15, 15, Henrietta Maria could have had no way of knowing that she would go on to become possibly Britain's most reviled queen consort. And that is up against some pretty stiff competition. Whether it was based on her religion or maybe her extramarital affairs, Charles I's wife was the source of a great deal of gossip and scandal. Today, we are delving into the stories that made her so unpopular and asking, is there any truth to any of them? Or Was it all just gossip and nonsense? Today, betwixt the sheets, we're going to find out. What do you look for in a man?
1: Oh, money, of course.
0: <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make
1: perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button...
0: Yes, social courtesy does make a difference.
1: Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with
0: it, dearie. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Perhaps it's not too surprising that, that the wife of a king who eventually had his head cut off by his subjects wasn't very popular and that's certainly true of Henrietta Maria. She did not have many fanboys and fangirls at court, especially amongst her husband's enemies. But somewhere between the endless rumours that she'd been having an affair for the last 40 years and the fact that she converted her husband to Catholicism, outrageous, there is a real life to be uncovered here. Henrietta Maria was a real woman with real thoughts and feelings and passions and is any of what people are whispering about her actually true? In this episode, I'm talking to Leander Lelisle to find out about Henrietta Maria's marriage, about what on earth she was up to during the Civil War, hopefully running in the other direction, and what she did after Charles was executed. Oh, and of course, we'll be talking about the scandalous stuff as well. Let's go! So, Hello and hello to Leander LeLisle. Thank you for joining me betwixt the sheets.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: There's no one I'd rather have with me to talk about this particular historical figure that we're talking about today because she doesn't get a lot of press, does she? Certainly not a lot of good press.
2: She's had plenty of bad press. (laughs) Yeah, she's not like up there with your blinds or no. And I think that's why. I think it's because, you know, she's being dissed and maligned, so people think she's uninteresting, which is a pity. So Henrietta Maria,
0: Queen of Charles the First. Who lost his edge. What was it that drew you to this
2: particular historical figure? What was the appeal? Well, I was writing a biography of Charles I, and I kept thinking, God, she's fascinating. She's so interesting. And I had to really rein myself in, not to just sort of let her take over. Yeah, I even said to a friend, oh, you must write a biography of Henrietta Maria. But then I couldn't stand it. And I just had to start one on her. And my agent was actually rather against it at first and said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. They'll just assume it's the boring bits you left out of White King. She's so brutally frank. And I said, now, I swear, there's not even a second of her life that is Darwin. And there's so much to say. No, there really isn't. I mean, she packed a lot in, didn't she? Yeah, she really did. Even before she married, age 15, she'd already seen, you know, her mother's best friend burned at the stake as a witch and her mother sent her to exile, you know, her brother rebelling against her mother, all sorts of things. That's before she'd even left France at 15. Oh, my God. Hashtag trauma. Yeah, no, exactly. She was quite tough, I believe. Resilient, I think. You You'd have to be, wouldn't you? Like you've seen
0: someone being burnt to death for being a witch. Her dad was stabbed to death when she was like two
2: or one. Not by her, but... Yeah, when she was a baby. Yeah, absolutely. She was with him that morning and he sort of, you know, kissed her and was playing with her. And then he went out in his carriage into Paris and he was stabbed to death in his carriage. He was assassinated by a Catholic fanatic who disapproved of his alliance with, you know, Protestant powers against the Catholic Habsburgs. And this is how Henrietta Maria then saw her marriage to Charles I because he was a king of a Protestant kingdom and he was looking for an alliance against the Habsburgs. So he, She sort of saw it in that light. So she was French, wasn't she? She grew up in France. We should start there. Yes, she was French. Her mother was a Medici, Marie de Medici, a fabulous character again. I mean, great woman, quite extraordinary figure who was a sort of regent of France and had you know, endless children of which Henrietta Maria was the last yeah. And as you say, then she was sort of you know, packed off in marriage. Very strange wedding night. Well, two strange wedding nights. Oh, go on. Tell me, we've got to know about that. So she's only 15 for a start off. The next is to 13 when she married to a much older man. But anyway, her actual wedding night, Charles was busy with a funeral in England. And so she was married to a proxy and the wedding night was spent with her very publicly getting into bed with the proxy and them just touching legs and that was considered to be consummation.
0: Explain a little bit about what that is by proxy, because I've only recently learned about this particular phenomenon. What is that? What's a proxy?
2: So if, you know, hubby, or indeed the bride is a bit busy, you get your mate to stand in for you. You know, they didn't do the dirty. It was restricted to, you know, leg touching. God, that's weird. I mean, how could you possibly grow up to be normal
0: in that kind of Oh, right. Okay, so she's lying in bed. She's had a bit of a leg touch with
2: this standing husband. That's weird. Exactly. And the real husband, meanwhile, is in England and horny as hell which is contrary to, I think, the impression a lot of people have been given about Charles. Because he was a failed king, people like to emphasize the fact that he was a sickly child when he was very small. And they don't realize that actually he then became a very strong and athletic adult. And like all the Stuarts, he was very energetic and also very randy. But his father persuaded him that having mistresses was dangerous because then you had bastards and then they would be difficult for the sort of royal succession So Charles was trying to keep away from having any mistresses. And he was 25. And so he was seriously looking forward to his actual wedding night when marriage was consummated the normal way. And so the first day she met him, She was expected to consummate the marriage, which indeed she did. And it has to be said, the next day, he's described as looking very happy and cheerful. And she's looking slightly less cheerful.
0: Oh, God.
2: Oh. Do we have any idea, like, what their sex life was like? Well, luckily, I think it certainly became very good. I think they certainly quarreled a lot the first couple of years of their marriage, because he was completely enthralled to his father's ex-boyfriend and favourite, the Duke of Buckingham. Charles was not homosexual or indeed bisexual and was not having a physical relationship with Buckingham, but there was a slight kind of Oedipal thing going on there, frankly.
0: It was sort of like an open secret, wasn't it? To quote every historian from then to now,
2: they were very good friends. They were exceptionally, exceptionally good friends. Well, with Buckingham and Charles' father, they were certainly exceptionally good friends. James did refer to Buckingham as his wife. They weren't subtle, really, were they? Not that subtle, though, no, exactly. And Buckingham obviously realised that James was old and ill and he would die. And so he started sucking up to Charles as the heir. And Charles, who was a lonely boy, really not the cool kid, was delighted to have the attention of Buckingham. And they became like sort of brothers, but against James. And that's just what I mean about there was something strange, psychological stuff going on there. Buckingham then saw Henrietta Maria as a threat to his influence over Charles. And so he did make difficulties in the marriage. And she was also a typical teenager of 15. I mean, a very stroppy, sparky one. And so, you know, there would be flaming rows with her. was a hilarious scene of her sitting in bed with him. And she says, you know, I want you to point these people to run my estates. And Charles says, no, they're French. They can't have French people running English estates. And then she has a complete fit. You're horrible. My life is dreadful. Everything in my life is dreadful. It's all your fault. And I thought to myself, gosh, this is the sort of cry of every 15-year-old down the centuries." <laughs> oh, God, it is, isn't it? Because she's like within her hair's breadth going, I never asked to be bored. Exactly. No, totally. Absolutely. And She does say sort of, you know, I want to die and I may die of misery. Full-blown puberty then. Yeah, full-blown puberty. And she loves to have a good time and have fun and amusing time with her friends. And Charles is very stuffy. And the English court is quite stuffy, strangely. So that is also a source of tensions. You know, she likes witty conversation. And as their marriage gets stronger and better, she still has lots of male friends she likes. I mean, the court is male-dominated, although she's very keen on projecting the idea that women should have a voice and have a right to their own opinions and conscience. But she does enjoy the company of witty, handsome, amusing, intelligent men. She loves that, you know, frankly, who doesn't? She's not so good because, unfortunately, even you look at our current royal family, they also have to spend quite a lot of time doing very boring things with very boring people.
0: God, yes. Yeah, see, so you sort of forget that, don't you? It's just, I often look at like our present royal family, and but one thing I always think, I don't think I'd like to do it. You know, for all the castles and all the titles and all the dripping in diamonds, it's just endless fascination in everything that you do all
2: the time. It must be exhausting. Oh, no, I'd be a nightmare. You know, you've got to spend hours talking to really quite dull people, being polite making polite conversation. Some people love that kind of stuff, of course. Yeah, no, I agree. I wouldn't like that, but other people do. But I think nobody likes being stuck in a corner with a ball. But they they have to do a lot of that. And there's a hilarious description of Henrietta Maria, for example. She hadn't learned Latin. She hadn't been taught Latin. And some diplomat giving a speech that goes on for over an hour in Latin to her and her getting the most appalling giggles.
0: I can really relate to that, of just that thing where you got the giggles and you
2: know you shouldn't have the giggles. Exactly. She does see the funny side of things. There's another incident she found very funny with another pompous diplomat. She had her eldest son at this time, was about sort of four, the future Charles II. But she also had with her, she brought up from the age of you know, five or six, a man called Geoffrey Hudson, and he was always with her. And the diplomat confused the dwarf, Geoffrey, with Charles II, as so a sort of bowing and scraping to Geoffrey, which he also found. Hilarious, as you can imagine. So she was not a pompous person, Hermet, it has to be said. No, she wants to have a good time. Yeah, she wants to have a good time, exactly. And she was a great sort of influencer, but also culturally. She liked performing on stage, she liked speaking on stage, although that wasn't approved of in England, and she was stopped from doing it in the end. But because she loved the theatre, all these sort of female centric plays were written. And I think that sort of introduced increasingly into England the idea that, as I said, that women should have a voice and that, you know, women were. She human beings in their own right, and not just appendages of men, which is ironic, really, because she was still perceived, really, as just this sort of appendage to her husband, Charles. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, there's a
0: spectacularly ancient history of slagging off the woman who's associated with any powerful man, from like Yoko Ono through to, I'm sure people took the piss out of Julius Caesar's wife, but what
2: was it about her that pissed people off? Well, I think it was partly that Charles made many sort of unpopular decisions, one of which, though, he was head of the Church of England, obviously, and he believed himself to be a divine like monarch. His father believed very strongly that he was God's lieutenant on earth. He had the right to rule people's souls as well as their bodies, really, as head of the church. And this was problematic in a number of ways. First of all, because Charles believed he was more important than Parliament and occasionally would quarrel with MPs and sometimes ignore them and raise taxes without parliamentary consent, which the English people didn't like, quite rightly. And also he believed a particular kind of high church protestantism which are low church Protestantism, which are those who, like, far more stripped down Protestantism, which means no music, no images, that sort of thing. And they didn't like that. And he believed everyone should worship as he did and persecuted Catholics, of course, because Catholics were not members of the Church of England. So the low church Protestants said, oh, you know, she's popish. She's making Charles popish. And this is still fed into English history. Also, they wanted someone to blame. If you couldn't blame the king directly, then you need to blame someone else and she's a convenient scapegoat. So I think that was another reason. And it is the old idea of Eve, which we often see. Eve seduced Adam in the garden of Eden. So, you know, poor old Adam. Yeah, never stood a chance. You know, there she was. She got her tits out, basically. And he became putty in her hands and went and disobeyed God. And so equally, Endless descriptions of, you know, what is this popish whore of France, this popish brat of France? She's in our king's bed. What's she doing there betwixt the sheets? Who knows? Terrible French Catholic things. Was she Catholic? She was Catholic, yeah, because the French were Catholics. Well, not all of them. That's the other thing. So the majority were Catholic and the royal family were Catholic. But there were also Huguenots, which were kind of low church Protestant, again, Calvinist Protestant. And in France, During this period, the period that she was brought up under these laws introduced by her father, Protestants could worship freely. So he could be a Protestant or a Catholic. That was why he was stabbed by the mad Catholic, not because he was a Protestant. Yeah, He was Catholic, but he was nice to Protestants, which certainly didn't meet everyone's approval. Yeah, so she was brought up with this idea that Protestants could practice freely in France, Catholics could practice freely in France. In England, Catholics were persecuted. You were prepared to pay fines if you didn't attend Protestant services. I mean, these were ruinous fines that poor would go to jail and then they couldn't feed their families. and Their families would starve. Priests would occasionally have their heads chopped off. And so when she went, one of the things she was told was expected of her by the French and indeed by the Pope, which was a kind of big ask, frankly, was to try and protect English Catholics, to try and set a good example so that Protestants might want to convert. And I think she hoped there could be some kind of system in England like that of France where Catholics would be free to practice their religion. And there was a period when Charles stopped chopping the heads off priests, but he never stopped fining Catholics, for example, but it wasn't so aggressive. And I think the fact that it was mellowed a bit was enough for people to say again, oh, you know, she's having a terrible influence.
0: That must have been really difficult for her then. Like, was there any kind of expectation that she'd renounce her faith when she got married?
2: Yeah, so I suppose were expectations, since there were hopes, there were certainly hopes in England that she might convert. And ironically, the way history has been told is because, you know, they're this 15-year-old child, almost as like if she's carrying a plague by the fact that she's a Catholic arriving in England and is going to be sleeping with their king. But from the perspective of her own family, is that her mother is where she's sending this 15-year-old girl to England, where she's going to be surrounded, of course, by Protestants. And that actually... The person who's much more likely to convert, with the person the pressure is really going to be on, is her. And so her mother says, and if you do that, I will never speak to you again. And my blessings will be turned to curses. You should be prepared to die a martyr rather than do that. That is tough. Yeah, she was given a set of pretty tough instructions, in which those were some. So she's referred to as the Popish Hall, which I quite like. Yeah, Popish Hall, the Popish Brat. Well, the Popish Brat, she joked about herself because just before the Civil War breaks out, she goes to Holland. Everyone's expecting Charles to lose the war because Parliament has most of the money. So people assume that Charles is going to be wiped out in the first battle of the Civil War. But she goes to Holland to raise money, men and arms very successfully and actually saves his bacon. Uh, but when she's there, she writes to him while she's saying what she's doing, how things are going. And she closes one of her letters by saying, jokingly, she says, Oh, yeah, and I'll pray for the man who married the popish brat of France, as the preachers say in London. I quite like that. She's funny. She's funny. Yeah, she's funny. As you say, talk about trauma. She goes through endless, endless of terrible things happen. And she can crack jokes, even in the most dire circumstances. So I can think of two examples of that. So there's one where she's taking a ship. From Holland back to England, carrying stuff for the war, there's a terrible, terrible storm. And one of the ships with her sinks, you know, people would drown. And the storm goes on for days and everyone is being sick and vomiting and terrifying. And They're convinced they're all going to die. And so... She and her ladies in waiting start saying their confession out loud. They're sort of clinging onto the mast and they're saying, I did this and I did that and I'm really sorry. God forgive me. God forgive me. But then, you know, the storm passes and they arrive. Well, they have to actually return back to Holland. They can't get to England on that journey. But anyway, they arrive back in Holland alive. The next thing she does is start taking the piss out of her ladies and waiting for all the things that they confessed out loud. Ha ha, I heard you did that. I can't believe it. <laughs> that was one thing she did. That's another thing. So later on in the Civil War, she's very, very ill. And she's given birth to a baby in Exeter. She had to leave her infant baby in Exeter and flee back to France in a ship being shot at. This parliament desperately wants to kill her because they felt that she was such a powerful aid to Charles. And she arrives in France. She's got a cyst in her breast because she can't breastfeed, obviously. And she says to her doctor, you know, oh, my God, I feel as if I'm going mad. And she reports that the doctor says, oh, don't worry, you're completely barking already. (laughs) (laughs) So she does take the piss out of herself, which I quite like, as well as other people. Yes.
0: I'll be back with Leander after this.
1: Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists. And uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit.
0: Is flying around about her, apart from the fact that she was Catholic, that she was doing a little bit more than just entertaining these pretty boys at
2: court. Oh, yeah. I think the best known is one supposed affair with a courtier called Henry German that people know about. And there's a biography written of this guy, Henry German, but also who's convinced they were having an affair. I saw an interview with him on television who said, oh, yes, nobody else was ever mentioned in relation to Henrietta Maria having an affair. Absolutely untrue. There were others who were sort of closer to her. And there was a guy called Montague, who I suspect actually was gay, who had lots of girlfriends, was very witty and a great companion, who she was very close to. She was supposed to have the fair with it. There was another guy who she was very close to called Henry, Earl of Holland, who betrayed her in 1642. He was a Calvinist. He was a low church Protestant. And they're actually great friends before the Civil War because they both shared the same foreign policy objective, which was against the Habsburgs. And people, again, don't know that, that actually she was a leader of a sort of Puritan faction at court before the Civil War. But he portrays her at the beginning of the Civil War. He goes over to the other side, she was supposed to have had an affair with him. I'm sure she didn't have an affair with either, because to be honest, I think Charles, as said, it was kept so busy on that front and pregnant.
0: For your money, it's complete nonsense. There was no affairs.
2: Yeah, no, I think she loved Charles and Charles liked his sex life and she was constantly pregnant. So I think there are two reasons it's very unlikely. One is that she loved Charles when he was alive. I think it's very unlikely she would have had an affair. And secondly, she did take very seriously the fact that she was the protector and representative of Catholic community in Britain and that she could not afford to mess around because people would know. One of her sisters had lots of lovers, very notoriously so, too many people depended on her, really. And then after Charles died, she was extremely traumatized by his execution. She was much closer than to Henry, German, to various reasons I won't bore you with. Again, because it would have been frowned on because she was then representing Charles II. She needed to get all the help and support she could in Europe to restore her son to the throne. And she played a great role. So after Charles was executed... She was in Paris and she's having dinner and she'd been told by Henry German, who was being a bit spineless, didn't want to tell her the truth, already knew the truth, that Charles had been rescued by the crowd on his way to the execution. So she sends messengers to try and find out what's happened and they don't come back and she's sitting there waiting, just chatting over dinner. And then she starts saying, it seems odd they haven't come back yet. And German says, oh, well, it's probably bad news then or something. And she said, oh, so you know, what's happened? Anyway, so she's told that he's been executed and she's completely shocked. And she just sits there, unable to speak or move. And she stays there as the sun sets until eventually one of her relatives takes her by the hand and takes her from the room. (laughs) anyway, so she goes and she sort of hides away for a couple of days. And then she emerges dressed in black and she's taken on this new image. And it's not like the image of Queen Victoria after Queen Albert died. It's much more like Diana, Princess of Wales after her divorce. She's grieving, but she's glamorous. And she's taken on this Catholic icon of the Queen of Sorrows. Which is, you know, after the Virgin Mary sees Christ executed, she's obviously very sad. And in Catholic iconography, she's depicted in statues and things with some sort of tears on her cheek and a sword at her breast sometimes. And she's known as the Queen of Sorrows. That is a very moving image. So when people go to pray, they like to pray to, I suppose, different aspects of God. And they pray to the Queen of Sorrow sometimes that they've had great sadness in their life and tried to, they see in this suffering woman, someone who could understand their own suffering. And I think Diana, Princess of Wales touched on that, that people felt that she had suffered and they loved her for that. And they felt that she understood their suffering. And so... Henrietta Maria similarly reflected this kind of image, which is a very powerful one. She's not going to want to mess that up by messing around with Henry German, who was sort of fast and red-faced by this stage. She was a very sort of proud royal person. She's also not going to be marrying a commoner. And she didn't remarry, did she, after Charlie Boy lost his head? No, she didn't remarry. As a widow, you were a very powerful figure as a woman. After Charles's execution, because she blamed his death on Protestant divisions between the different kinds of Protestants. And that made her much angrier towards Protestants. So she would not have married Henry German as a Protestant, and it would have messed up the whole persona she had taken on. Nevertheless, this is what people said when she went back to England. They sort of loved the gossip, and they even said that one of Charles's mistresses was her bastard daughter, by Henry Chalman.
0: There's so much that she's dealing with. It'd be really easy to think that she's tragic, but she doesn't come across as tragic. Like going to that civil war, it would be like what Brexit would be like if we were allowed to kill each other and had
2: muskets. It's just crazy. Exactly. And you think about Brexit and how it divided friends families, tempers. I mean, in Europe, they think we all voted for Brexit, but actually... It was really close, wasn't it? It was really close, exactly. But as you see, you had people shooting each other and killing each other, fathers and sons often, and friends. And Henrietta Maria, you know, one of our best male friends, Henry Holland, like I said, her best girlfriend, Lucy Cantor Carlyle, also betrayed her at the beginning of the Civil War. And funny enough, again, I think in the history books, because they do have a serious down on her, there's a description of her written by a famous diarist called Samuel Pepys, who he sees her at court in 1660. Her son, Charles II, has been restored to the throne. And this diarist, who sees her for the first time, dressed in black, she looks very ordinary and depressed. Well, the reason for this is that her youngest son, Henry, has just died. You know, so that is a bit of a bummer. She was not going to be taking out her castanets and doing a dance, you know, while her younger son has just died. But then what they don't do is they don't describe or quote Samuel Pepys. A couple of years later, he again goes to court. He says that she has the merriest and most amusing court, jollier even than that of the famous Mary Monarch Charles II. All the fun people are basically around Henrietta Maria. And she herself describes herself as, you know, as happy as she's ever been. She's, again, a powerful figure. You know, she is the Phoenix Queen. She's sort of risen from the ashes of the Civil War, reborn. Was she close to her
0: son, I was going to say sons, but I mean, particularly Charles
2: II. Was that a good relationship? They quarrelled to the death, particularly when they were sort of in their teens and things. She was not backwards and coming forwards with her opinions. And if she thought they were wrong, she would say so extremely vigorously. But, you know, they never mistook this for anything that wasn't love. You know, quarrelling... Shouting at each other, saying you disagree, does not mean you don't love each other. And when she dies, they're all devastated. Two of her children, a daughter and a son, Henry and Elizabeth, are kept by Parliament throughout the Civil War. And her daughter, Elizabeth, dies in Parliament's care. And she's only, I think, 13 when she dies. Henry Maria is devastated by this. And the daughter also dies at Carasbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight, where Charles had been kept imprisoned. It was a horrible place. And and she had a particularly horrible jailer in charge of her at the time. And Henry was is incredibly sad about that. But of course, she's lost that daughter. Henry, he was tiny when he was taken by Parliament. Um, a tiny little boy doesn't really have any memories of his mother when they finally re-meet in exile in the 1650s. And then they quarrel because she wants him to convert. And the reason she wants him to convert is that the Stuarts are all doing really badly. They're stuck in Europe. They're completely penniless. They've got no money, no power. Life is really quite bad. And she thinks, well, if Henry becomes a Catholic, I can marry him off to a rich princess. You'll have money, power, and he won't have a miserable time. Or the Pope can make him a cardinal. He'd be a prince of the church He'll have a lovely time. And also she thinks it'd be better for him all around. And he's only 14 or something at this stage. So she feels she's got a perfect right to pack him off, to stay with one of her mates, one of these men who are actually supposed to be an ex-boyfriend. But Henry won't be converted because the last memory of his father is sitting on his father's lap just before his execution. And his father is sitting on him saying, this tiny boy who sort of eight, I think, at that stage, they're going to cut off your father's head. They're going to ask you to become king and you mustn't. And the little boy says, let them kill me first. And Charles also says, you know, I'm dying a martyr for the Church of England. Obey your mother in all things, but not religion. And Henry is not going to betray his father or his faith. So Henry says, no, I'm not going to convert. And Henrietta Maria says, well, then get out of my house. Get out of my house. I'm not speaking to you. Then 1660, of course, they're in a powerful position. She doesn't need to have this public break with her son, Henry. And so she says, Oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing all my family again in England. She's going to meet Henry again, this boy with whom she had this quarrel, hasn't seen since he was 14. And he dies before she arrives you see and that's why again you know, when I said earlier about Samuel Peep seeing her looking black and sad not only is her son dies but he's died under these terrible circumstances so she was close to her children with Henry there was this different and very tragic story which did not mean that she did not love him
0: my final question to you of this remarkable woman who we could actually just say and talk about for hours and hours and hours but I can't take up your time like that what do you think her legacy is because your book Phoenix Queen is just a tour de force in not necessarily necessarily uh, rewriting her, but just bringing it more into focus of she isn't what you think she is. She isn't the worst queen in England. She's not the popish brat. (laughs) She's actually
2: quite good fun. But what do you think her legacy is? What is her legacy? That is a very good question. Well, she introduced lots of French influence that we have. Parquet floors, sash windows, French food, um, you know, all sorts of French influence that we still have actually came from her.
0: And that will do for me. The next time I'm eating a French shoe bun, I'll think, thanks, Henrietta Maria, you mad tart.
2: She did actually have a, a French baker, especially so she can have French pastries every day. Oh, God, I would, though. If you were the queen, I want a
0: French pastry chef. Exactly. We you want your nice cakes. That's what I would do. If people want to learn more about you and your research and this book, where can they find you?
2: Well, I'm on Twitter at Leander Delisle. I've got a website, leanderdelisle.com, and the book you can get anywhere, really. Thank you,
0: Leanda. You've been so much fun to talk to. Thank you so much for joining me betwixt the sheets.
2: Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Bye.
0: I hope that you've enjoyed that episode, and thank you so much to Leander for joining me. If you like what you've heard, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again betwixt the sheets, the History of Sex Scandal in Society," a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by epidemic sounds.
1: Small details are big surfaces.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just
2: £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.